This is the new biography of Alumpa Chah's life and teachings, uh, written by Ajahn Jayasaro. And we're in the midst of the chapter called The Heart of the Matter on Meditation. And this is the second section called Thorns and Prickles. <clears throat> Hindrances. The immediate obstacles to the development of samadhi and wisdom are a group of defilements that the Buddha called the nivarana, or hindrances. He described them as, quote, overgrowths of the mind that stultify insight, unquote. They are five in number. Karma chanda, sensual thoughts. Viapada, ill will. Tinamita, sloth and torpor. Udacha kukucha, agitation, guilt and remorse. And fifth, uh, vichikicha, doubt and indecision. The Buddha made clear the vital importance of dealing with the hindrances as follows. So there's a couple of passages from the suttas. This is from the Anguttara, Book of the Fives, first of all. Without having overcome these five, it is impossible for a monk whose insight thus lacks strength and power to know his own true wheel, the wheel of others, that's the, the welfare of others, and the wheel of both, or that he will be capable of realizing that superior human state of distinctive achievement, a truly noble distinction in knowledge and vision. Elsewhere, the Buddha compared the hindrances to the baser metals impairing the purity of gold. And this is also from the Book of the Fives in the Anguttara Nikaya. Once the gold has been freed of impurities, then it becomes pliant and wieldy and can be wrought into whatever ornaments one wishes. Similarly, the mind freed of the five hindrances will be pliant and wieldy, will have radiant lucidity and firmness, and will concentrate well upon the eradication of the taints. To whatever state realizable by the higher mental faculties one may direct the mind, one will, in each case, acquire the capacity of realization if the other conditions are fulfilled. The basic method for dealing with hindrances is to cultivate a mindful, balanced effort combined with positive regard for the meditation object to the extent that as yet unarisen hindrances do not arise in the first place. When that's not possible, having become aware that they are, uh, that they are caught in a hindrance, meditators are taught to abandon it without regret and patiently return to the meditation object. Rather than immediately re-establishing attention on the breath, Lumpur taught that at the moment of recognizing the hindrance for what it was and letting it go, meditators should also acknowledge the distraction as minor, as changeful, impermanent, unstable. By doing so, they introduced an element of wisdom into meditation that would gradually flourish as their meditation skills grew. So to not just reflect upon the, the presence of a hindrance like ill will or sense desire or restlessness, but to also re reflect upon that uh, the uncertain, unstable, and uh, impermanent quality of the hindrance as well. And then uh, Lumpur uh, Chah is speaking here. When something arises in your mind, no matter if it's something you like or something you dislike, something you think is right or something you think is wrong, Cut it right off by reminding yourself, it's changeful. It doesn't matter what it is, just chop right through it. Changeful, changeful, my nair, my nair. 
use this single axe to chop through mental states. Everything is subject to change. Where can you find anything real and solid? If you see this instability, then the value of everything decreases. Mental states are all worthless. Why would you want things of no value? For those struggling with the hindrances and feeling discouraged at their lack of success, he gave the following encouragement. Again, Lumpuchara is speaking. Even if your mind finds no peace, merely sitting cross-legged and putting forth effort is already a fine thing. This is the truth. You could compare it to being hungry and having nothing to eat except plain rice. You've got nothing to eat with the rice and you feel upset. What I'm saying is, it's good that you've got rice to eat. Plain rice is better than nothing at all, isn't it? If plain rice is all you've got, then eat it up. Practice is the same. Even if you experience only a very small amount of calm, it's still a good thing. So that's encouraging. To we have more than plain rice on the servery every morning. But, uh, there's probably a certain amount of plain rice served in the temple. If the simple expedient of patiently returning to the object again and again is not working, then specific antidotes needed to be employed. There was much to be learned in the quest to transcend the hindrances. Lumpur advised looking on them as teachers or tests of wisdom rather than enemies. And that's a, a very, very common theme of um, Lumpur Cha's uh, teaching. He would talk about the, the five hindrances uh, as uh, the five uh, ajans or the five teachers. And, that, um, and often he said of himself, when uh, people were impressed by it, the degree of wisdom that he displayed or his knowledge of the teachings or his range of skillful means, and they would say, oh, you must have studied a lot, you must have spent you know, years and years um, learning the Abhidhamma and studying suttas to learn all, all this, uh, uh, and this uh, to develop all this wisdom and to learn all these, these useful uh, approaches. And he said, no, it's just because uh, I've had a lot of defilements. That, uh, that's, that's why I've developed any wisdom, is because my mind has been filled with sense, desire, ill will, restlessness, doubt. Uh, <clears throat> the only one he didn't specialize in was, was uh, dullness. Everything else was so hot. That, uh, he, uh, he never really did sloth and torpor, it seems, in the way that he speaks in his own practice. But lots of greed, lots of aversion, lots of restlessness and, and mountains of doubt. So it was through his working with, with many, many hindrances, these were great teachers for him. So he developed a lot of wisdom and skillful means around working with the, uh, the hindrances. Sensual desire. The first hindrance occurs through indulgence in thoughts bound up with the sensual world. The meditator who is still unable to find satisfaction in meditation tends to seek pleasure, warmth and distraction by turning to the world of the senses. This hindrance's most powerful expression lies in sexual desires and fantasies, but it also includes taking pleasure in memories or imagination relating to any other aspect of the sensual world that the meditator finds attractive. Food, music, movies, sport, politics, any topic at all that is felt to be enjoyable by the one who dwells upon it. In dealing with this hindrance, Lumpur emphasized the protection of sense restraint. Eating little, sleeping little, talking little, 
were made key principles for the Sangha at Podpapong. The mind was to be taught to avoid becoming engrossed in the general appearance or particular features of any sense object. It was not possible to simply turn off a habit of indulgence in sensual pleasures for the duration of a meditation session. There also had to be a constant effort to govern such desires in daily life. As the key condition for this hindrance is dwelling unwisely on the attractive aspects of sensual experience, the specific antidote lies in replacing it with wise reflection on the unattractive aspects. Sexual desire being the most potent and disruptive expression of the hindrance, it is the one to which most specific remedies are applied. And here is uh, Lumpo Cha speaking again. Visualize the body as a corpse in the process of decay, or think of the parts of the body, such as lungs, spleen, fat, feces, and so forth. Remember these and visualize this loathsome aspect of the body when lust arises. This will free you from lust. If you look at the human body and you like what you see, then ask yourself, why? Investigate it. Look at head hair, body hair, nails, teeth and skin. The Buddha taught us to hammer in the reflection on these things. Distinguish them one by one, separate them from the body. Visualize setting fire to them or peeling off the skin. Do that until you become fluent. Contemplation of the body has already been referred to as a meditation object in its own right and as a preliminary exercise preceding mindfulness of breathing. Here it's employed as a means of hauling the mind back onto the middle path when it has strayed into the realm of the senses. Once the hindrance has been abandoned, meditators may then resume their focus on their original meditation object. So also just... Uh, that uh, little saying that he mentions, eat little, sleep little, talk little, uh, those often uh, in Alumpo Chao's monasteries, you have notices pinned up on the trees or up, uh, around and about in the monastery. And this was a, uh, a very, very common one. Put noi, gin noi, non noi. To speak little, eat little, and sleep little. And um, so that was a, a frequent uh, admonition. And uh, <coughs> the... Uh, also, the, uh, uh, in many, many of Lumpo uh, Cha's Dhamma talks, speaking about uh, uh, sense desire and uh, the using the, um, the, kind of the capacity to, to visualize or imagine and to, to reflect is uh, applied in, in many, many various ways. He just speaks here about uh, going through the different parts of the body, uh, dismantling it. But another method that... Uh, he would encourage, and, and Lumpur Sumedha would also teach in this way, is if the mind is following a pattern of desire, then one uh, simple thing you can, you can do is uh, when the mind wants, uh, is wanting something, just to ask it, and then what? And say, okay, and then what? And then what? And then what? And then what? And if you do that four or five times, eventually the mind just says, oh, shut up. <laughs> you're you're ruining the whole thing, <laughs> like you're spoiling the joke. You know, it only, it's like a conjuring trick. It, it only works if you if you don't really see it clearly. And uh, if you use that sort of analytical mind to explore a desire, then it, it spoils the trick. It, it, uh, it you're looking too closely. It's like the lights are too bright. It's like why they have bright lights in uh, in fast food restaurants like. Uh, McDonald's and Burger King and such like 
is so that you won't stay there very long. You'll, you'll move on. You'll kind of make space for the next customers. So that uh, if you can see too clearly, you don't like to hang around. Yeah. And so you want to move to where it's a bit more shadowy and, uh, and dim. So that uh, that uh, aspect of bringing light into the mind and using reflective thought to sort of illuminate what the mind is wanting. And similarly with aversion, which is the next one, ill will. Um, if you're averse to somebody or you're getting really annoyed about that, the, the monk who sits next to you, the way they breathe, <laughs> you might think I'm joking. <laughs> but it can get, you can, in a in meditation retreat, it can get extremely irritating. Uh, when many, many years ago at Chithurst, um, the only room we had, the whole house was filled with dry rots. The only space we had for meditation was what's now the reception room there. Those of you who know Chithurst, that's the reception room. The, the, uh, there was no, uh, where the Dhamma Hall is, that was just the old coach house. And the shrine room had a huge hole in the floor where the dry rot had eaten the, eaten the floor. <laughs> so we only had the reception room as our meditation space. And there was about 25 of us sitting in there on retreat. And the, the monk sitting in front of me, when he was concentrated, his anapanasati would be <laughs> <laughs> and his breathing was so loud that uh, well, I, I would look forward to when he got distracted because then it would go quiet. <laughs> but unfortunately his concentration was quite good. So you had this kind of bellows-like breathing going on and I was sitting there developing ill will towards this dear, my dear venerable brother until I had this great insight after about three or four days where I would, con I would concentrate on his breath rather than mine. Because <laughs> his was much louder than mine was. <laughs> Just the kind of deflected anapanasati. But it kind of worked, actually, strangely enough. So anyway, the next uh, section is ill will, biapada. <clears throat> Ill will is conditioned by ungratified desire. <clears throat> its occurrence in meditation is often based on an obsession with things or people that are not doing, saying, or being the way we would prefer. Case in point. The mind picks up a rankling perception or memory and broods on it. In Jack Cornfield's Notes from a Session of Questions and Answers, Lumpur is asked for advice in dealing with this hindrance. Jack Cornfield asks him, how about anger? What should I do when I feel anger arising? Lung Paul responds, you must use loving kindness. When angry states of mind arise in meditation, balance them by developing feelings of loving kindness. If someone does something bad or gets angry, don't get angry yourself. If you do, you're being more ignorant than they are. Be wise. Keep compassion in mind. For that person is suffering. Fill your mind with loving kindness as if he were a dear brother. Concentrate on the feeling of loving kindness as a meditation subject. Spread it to all beings in the world. Only through loving kindness is hatred overcome. Which is a passage from the Dhammapada. Sometimes you may see other monks behaving badly. You may get annoyed. This is suffering unnecessarily. It's not yet our Dhamma. You may think like this. He's not as strict as I am. They're not as serious meditators like us. Those monks are not good monks. This is a great defilement on your part. Do not make comparisons. 
Do not discriminate. Let go of your opinions and watch your mind. This is our Dhamma. You can't possibly make everyone act as you wish or be like you. This wish will only make you suffer. It's a common mistake for meditators to make. But watching other people won't develop wisdom. Simply examine yourself, your feelings. This is how you will understand. And as a rule of thumb, Lumpur recommended, look at yourself 90% of the time and others 10% of the time. So if you divide that up, each individual or other, other people doesn't get much, much attention. So 90% goes on to your own mind, your own body, your own life. Although it makes sense for meditators to seek the most supportive environment for practicing meditation, there is almost always something or other that the mind, if it wishes, can latch onto with aversion. When meditators complained about external conditions disturbing them, Rumpur would reply that the problem did not lie in the condition. Conditions were just doing what conditions have always done and always will do, arise and pass away. The problem arose, he said, because the meditator was disturbing the condition. In other words, it was the meditator's aversion to the condition rather than the condition itself that was the true hindrance to meditation. Often the hindrance of ill will occurs as a dissatisfaction or frustration with a meditator's practice. Meditators can become aggravated by their inability to progress as fast as they hoped, angry at the particular problems that arise resentful of physical pain that makes it hard to focus. They dwell on the things that they don't like again and again until a deep furrow is dug into which their mind throws itself repeatedly. Meditation itself can become an object of aversion. A frightening experience or strong painful feelings while sitting may make the mind resist continuing the practice. At this stage, meditators look to fill their time with every possible activity except meditation. Anyone ever had that experience? <laughs> it's frequently about the, after about week three of a winter retreat. More noises start to appear from the workshop. <laughs> <laughs> we actually, one of the, the, the second monk here, when I was the, the uh, Lumpur Sumedha was traveling during the winter retreat, the, the, my, my dear and beloved second monk actually built an entire stupa in the middle of the courtyard. It was uh, started off as an idea. We had these. Um, uh, uh, the boiler house had these uh, huge cast iron baffles that were used for, in the old boiler system, and they were going to be uh, uh, sent to the scrap heap and recycled. And we had this idea: these look like the the, the kind of stone fence surrounding the ancient stupa at Sanchi. We could we could use them to make a stupa here. So. His mind got going, and, and <clears throat> not, not every morning, but slowly but surely, the stupa started arising in the middle of the, the old courtyard here. Before there was the cloister, it was just the car park, it was a school playground. And he, he got car tires, old tractor tires from the, from the Blaine's uh, uh, tire service next door, some big tractor tires and smaller and smaller and smaller. That was the core of the stupa. And then he had these, uh, cast these concrete Chinese lanterns to make part of the surrounding, and then he had these 16 cast-iron baffles that formed the, the circle. And, uh, and because the center of it was, was car tires, it was called the, Goodyear, the, the Heart of Gold Goodyear Memorial Stupa. <laughs> it was kind of a great, a great construction, but this was during the winter retreat. 
and he was the second monk. So there was more and more noises coming out from the the workshop, and more and more kind of droopy eyes from more and more members of the community who had been drawn into this little project. It's anything but sit and watch your mind. I mean, it was a nice stupa, but it served a purpose. But it was part of the driving force, I would suggest, was exactly what Ajahn Jayasaro is talking about here, that um, when the mind gets uh, uh, drawn over and over into negative states, it just wants to do anything, any, any kind of semi-legal excuse to get away from your mind. So building a stupa, it's really important. Amaravanti needs a heart. Hasn't, hasn't really got a center. This is before the temple was built. <coughs> so we need, to, we need to have a heart for the monastery. And yeah, well, there's, kind of, there's lots of time. And materials. People. So uh, this is a very, um, very useful area of ill will to explore, that the, what takes the mind away from meditation. And uh, to to get familiar with that dynamic and to um, uh, be able to redirect, uh, to, to be able to know that kind of aversion, restlessness and uh, uh, aversive recoiling from training the mind to distract and to, uh, to not go along with that. As he says, at this stage meditators look to fill their time with every possible activity except meditation. And I fully confess writing books is also a good way of getting away from meditation. I've written about 20 or 30 of them. <laughs> when affected by this hindrance, Lung Po encouraged his disciples to keep returning to the basic principle enshrined in the Four Noble Truths. Suffering arises through craving. In this case, the root of the problem lies in the desire not to have, not to be, not to have to experience the I don't need this, quote-unquote, mind. And Lumpur is speaking. Your mind is chaotic because of craving. You don't want to think. You don't want to have anything going on in your mind. This not wanting is the craving called vibhava tanha, the desire to get rid of. The more you desire not to think, the more you encourage thoughts. You don't want the mind to think, so, why do the thoughts come? You don't want it to be that way. So, why is it? Exactly. It's because you don't understand your mind, but you want it to be a certain way. While Lumpur emphasized this understanding of craving as an antidote to this hindrance, the suttas recommend meditation on loving-kindness. By its systematic development, thoughts of kindness and benevolence are able to replace thoughts of anger and resentment. Interestingly, this meditation was not one that Lumpur greatly encouraged for monastics. He considered it to be a risky practice for a celibate monk or nun, as the pure emotion of loving-kindness could easily morph into more sensual feelings. Also, monastics who practiced loving-kindness meditation diligently often became very attractive to the opposite sex, which could also jeopardize their monastic vocation. And with uh, Lumpur's great skill at coming out with brief and pithy statements, his comment on this was, too much matter and you get babies. <laughs> That's a simple way of remembering it. So also, uh, in, this, uh, in this respect, uh, and an aspect of this that, uh, that uh, Lumpur Sumato would teach on very, very frequently um, 
and uh, particularly, uh, he's a sort of vibhavatana expert, because <laughs> his mind uh, would create a lot of that kind of negativity, that uh, not just having loving-kindness for other beings, but uh, what Lumpur Sumedha would, would emphasize is this quality of loving-kindness or a, a, a receptivity towards the mind states themselves, so that uh, if the mind is getting stuck into the I don't need this, I don't need this, I can't bear this, uh, as a mind state, to have loving kindness for the I don't need this mind state, to, to meet that and to have a quality of, of openness, acceptance, and non-judgmentalism towards that very mind state. So that, um, and in that respect, when we talk about metta, it's often translated as loving kindness, but Lumpur used the, the, the English rendition of not dwelling in aversion. Uh, very, very frequently. So, not uh, so meta as not just a, a kind of a positive. Not, you're not trying to make meta into a positive liking, but rather it's an openness of heart or a receptivity, a, a, a capacity to not contend against anything. And particularly in terms of mind training and the meditation, that readiness not to contend against your restlessness, not to contend against anger or, or aversion. You're not condoning, you're saying it's a wonderful thing, I hate the monk next to me because of the way he breathes. <laughs> you're not, uh, you're not uh, rejoicing in the fact that you're feeling uh, restless or, or negative. But there's a, there's a recognition, here it is, whether I like it or not, it's like this. Here it is. There's a, like a fundamental realism uh, and uh, uh, acknowledging in this moment, there is this, it feels this way. And that... Uh, that uh, what I call a radical acceptance, or what Lumpur Sumedha would call a not dwelling in aversion. It's the, the mind that refuses to contend against anything. It, it refuses to make even an unwholesome or unskillful or, or a destructive mind state. It refuses to make it into an enemy or, or a problem. And through that non-contention, and as Lumpur Cha puts it here, you know, it's exactly, it's because you don't understand your mind that you want it to be a certain way. So that you're, you're dropping that, it shouldn't be this way, I shouldn't have this aversive feeling, I shouldn't have this negative feeling. But the first step is, here it is. And then, uh, and then uh, on that, that quality of acceptance, then there's the, um, the, the reflection, okay, this is something that's unwholesome, it's obstructive, it's difficult, therefore don't, uh, don't feed it or encourage it, but it's part of the, the field of experience. It, it belongs. It has its place in nature. You know, violence and, and aversion and, and selfishness, they are part of the natural order. They don't bring beautiful and pleasant results, but they are part of nature. So that quality of, of uh, not dwelling in aversion or non-contention is that, uh, that recognition of... Uh, and uh, what I would say is the, the root of loving-kindness is that, that openness... And then, on that basis of loving-kindness, then the, the uh, mindfulness and wisdom can discriminate, okay, this is wholesome, this is beneficial, steer this way. This is harmful, this is destructive, this is painful, steer away from that. So the next section is called Sloth and Torpor, Dinamita. The third of the five hindrances, Sloth and Torpor, occurs most readily in a mind habituated to a high level of stimulation. In such cases, focusing on a single unexciting object like the breath tends to induce feelings of boredom, followed by dullness. 
It can lead to meditators losing their awareness altogether, sitting with the head bobbing up and down or slumped on their chest. Also, it can make you wonder why that hour went by so quickly. Well, I must have been deeply in jhana. <laughs> Probably not. <clears throat> this hindrance also affects medit afflicts meditators who indulge in the relaxed feelings that occur with the elimination of coarse mental agitation. In its more subtle forms, the hindrance can manifest as a state of mind that is calm, but stiff and unwieldy. On one occasion, the Buddha compared the mind overcome with sloth and torpor to a prisoner in a dark and stuffy dungeon, and at, an, at another time likened it to fresh water choked by water plants. For the monastics of Wadbapong, the simple and repetitive way of life, free of most of the grosser kinds of sensual stimulation, reduced the likelihood that their minds would react against the discipline required in formal meditation. Lumpur's regular reminders to sustain mindfulness and sense restraint in all postures were thus aimed at reducing the gap between a meditator's awareness in periods of formal meditation and in daily life. Monks were encouraged to observe factors that increased or decreased their tendency towards laziness and mental dullness. Food intake was one obvious variable. And uh, Lumpur Chaya is speaking here. If you find yourself sleepy every day, try to eat less. Examine yourself. As soon as five more spoonfuls will make you full, stop. Then take water until just properly full. Go and sit. Watch your sleepiness and hunger. You must learn to balance your eating. As your practice goes on, you'll feel naturally more energetic and eat less. But you must adjust yourself. Lumpur gave many exhortations aimed at inspiring in his disciples the wholesome desire to strive for freedom from defilement and to realize inner liberation. It was bearing this wholesome desire, Dhammachanda, in mind that played the largest role in guarding against the hindrance of sloth and torpor. Without cultivating this strong aspiration to penetrate the Four Noble Truths, meditators going through periods of emotional turmoil or strong defilement could find their minds retreating into dullness during meditation as a means of anesthetizing their mental pain. So that's a very com uh, common uh, experience. Also, if you're suffering from a lot of um, negativity or, or, or emotional stress and strain and difficulty, and so that any time you sit down to watch your mind, there's this kind of painful, thorny, uh, and uh, um, uh, stressful set of emotions, the easiest thing to do is just switch off to, to stop feeling. And not that the mind is doing that deliberately or consciously, you know, to sit down, oh, my mind is filled with, with uh, negative emotions, therefore I'll just switch off. It's not a, a deliberate conscious act, but just uh, rather a, a drift of, uh, I've had enough of this, this is painful, this is awful, <laughs> and just uh, slides towards numbness and, and uh, unconsciousness. The weekly all-night sittings were opportunities for monks at Wakpapong to come face to face with drowsiness and to be given no choice but to seek for skillful means to overcome it. Emerging from a period of drowsiness after a steady refusal to give into it could be an empowering and even rapturous experience. The patience accumulated by a regular practice of working with drowsiness was not an immediately obvious benefit, 
but many monks would acknowledge that over a period of months and years it became increasingly evident. Nevertheless, when monks, sorry, nevertheless, whenever monks were pushing themselves physically, during monastery work projects, for example, and particularly in periods of hot and humid weather, sloth and torpor could be a major could still be a major obstacle. Lumpur gave a number of practical tips, and, uh, and many of these also appear in the suttas as advice given by the Buddha as well. There are many ways to overcome sleepiness. If you're sitting in the dark, move to a lighted place. Open your eyes. Get up and wash your face or take a shower. If you're sleepy, change postures. Walk a lot. Walk backwards. The fear of running into things will keep you awake. If this fails, stand still, clear the mind, and imagine it's full daylight. Or sit on the edge of a high cliff or a deep well. You won't dare sleep. <laughs> this is true. I, I, uh, in 1995, I, I had, uh, before Abayagiri Monastery opened in California, we had a four um, monks and two laymen had a, a retreat up in the hills in Northern California. And it was a very, um, had some very rocky, out, um, steep rocky outcrops. And so I'd go down from my tent and I'd sit uh, every morning at the, at the edge of this cliff. But I'm not really a morning person, I'm much more of a nighttime person by disposition. So I'd go down and sit with this 300 foot drop straight down. And it was amazing how I never felt sleepy. And <laughs> <laughs> you've got a 300 foot drop in front of you, there's a. There's a, a, a kind of full-body awareness that somehow kicks in. Something in you knows. It's a long way down, and uh, and you won't survive if you drop. So that, that helps to keep the, uh, the arousal level to, uh, at a peak. Sit on the edge of a high cliff or a deep well. You won't dare sleep. If nothing works, then just go to sleep. People are sometimes surprised by that piece of advice. If nothing else works, then just go to sleep. Lay down carefully and try to be aware until the moment you fall asleep. Then, as you awaken, get right up. Don't look at the clock or roll over. Start practicing mindfulness from the moment you wake up. Continuity of practice was essential. If meditators allowed sloth and torpor to, uh, in its guise as laziness or reluctance to hold them back, they were lost. They had to develop a consistent effort, impervious to passing moods. And again, Lumpur Cha, one, uh, one of his most famous and oft-repeated statements, when you feel diligent, practice. When you feel lazy, practice. Also, uh, you know, be, being aware that I'm starting this book so halfway through, so uh, prior to this has been a lot of the history of Lumpur Cha's own practice and then the establishment uh, of Wat Bapong. so uh, the mention of the all-night sittings, so that was every uh, every week on the lunar days, as we do here, at least up until midnight. But uh, when Lumpur Cha first started teaching, uh, before Wat Bapong opened in 1954, in 1952-53, he had a small group uh, of uh, monks practicing with him, and uh, the standard for their, their rains retreat was an all-night sitting every night. <laughs> every night for the whole three months and uh, for the third month just to crank it up even more it was an all-night sitting and no one was allowed to move so if you think you have a tough time here at Amravati 
you guys have no idea. <laughs> but it's also uh, it's also interesting that uh, though although that was uh, the um, the standard that that Lumpur Cha had uh, when he began his teaching uh, sort of teaching career that uh, after a couple of rains retreats of doing it that way he realized perhaps that's a bit much. <laughs> So he kind of toned it down a little bit, but they would <coughs> frequently they would have um, the, the all night sittings, and and uh, he, uh, he, people would be allowed to go and change the posture to go to walking meditation. But usually Lumpur Cha would just sit there without moving himself all night long. That was sort of his his general standard. Also, um, as a footnote on on pain, well, an interesting thing that um, was discovered after Lumpur was already paralysed. Uh, so in the last eight or nine years of his life, he was completely paralyzed, and so, and he couldn't speak, and so uh, he was exercised by his attendant monks. So there was a whole little exercise routine that would be done for him to keep his muscles working and to uh, change his posture and so forth. And uh, various uh, doctors were, were looking after him during that time, and one of the doctors observed that one of his knees had some quite serious uh, cartilage damage in one of his knees. And the doctor commented, oh, this must have been really painful for Lumpur. And they said, well, what? Said, well, this knee is, is really quite badly damaged. The cartilage is really torn. So this, this must have been something that was difficult for him to, to work with. You know, he'd spent so much time sitting uh, and meditating or talking to people. And they said, he never mentioned it. Said, well, he must have done it. This is really badly damaged. You know, this must have been really painful to him. Said, never said a word. So they don't know how long that... that uh, um, that had been there, but apparently years and years, and that Lumpur had never ever mentioned having a dodgy knee or that he couldn't sit for very long because he uh, his knee was was bothering him. But uh, no one knew until the doctors were able to to spot that while he could no longer speak. So <coughs> it's an interesting um, uh, commentary also on his uh, his relationship to to uh, to feeling and his uh, the depth of his detachment. So then the last two hindrances, um, agitation and worry, is the next one. And doubt and indecision is the last one. Agitation and worry, udacha kukucha, which in itself sounds a bit agitated, <laughs> itchy, udacha kukucha. The fourth hindrance consists of two kinds of mental noise. Firstly, agitation, a busy restlessness of mind. And secondly, worry or guilty thoughts about the past. Only when the mind is asked to sustain attention on an object is the full extent of its habitual unrest revealed. <coughs> the mad pinballing of the mind that ensues is the first great frustration experienced by the new meditator. As with other hindrances, the default remedy is to patiently bring the mind back to the object again and again until the mind is tamed. But when the mind is agitated, Trying to restrain it can be a tiring and thankless task. Lumpur would caution meditators to be wary of falling into the trap of vibhavatanha, the craving to get rid of something. Rather than providing the impetus to free the mind from this hindrance, this kind of craving only made matters worse. A confused meditator asked him, So, when it darts about, I should just keep watching it? And Lumpur responds, when it darts about, it's right there. You don't follow it, but you're aware of it. 
Where could it go? It's in the cage. It can't go anywhere. Your problem is that you don't want anything going on in your mind. Lumpuman called that vacant state tree stump samadhi. It's not Pali. Tree stump, like the stump of a tree. Tree stump samadhi. If your mind is darting around, know that it's doing that. If it's motionless, then know that. What more do you need? Just have the measure of both movement and stillness. If today the mind is peaceful, then see it as a foundation for wisdom. But people like the peace. It makes them happy. They say, today I had a wonderful sitting, so peaceful. There. If you think like that, then the next day it'll be hopeless. Your mind will be a jumble. And then it's, oh, today my sitting was terrible. Ultimately, good and bad have the same value. Good things are impermanent. Bad things are impermanent. Why give them so much significance? If the mind is agitated, then look at that. If it's peaceful, then look at that. In this way, you allow wisdom to arise. Agitation is a natural expression of the mind. Just don't get caught up with it. A monkey doesn't keep still, does it? Suppose you see a monkey and start to feel uncomfortable because it won't keep still. You begin to wonder when it will ever stop moving around. You want to make it still so that you can feel at ease. But that's the way monkeys are. A Bangkok monkey, an Ubon monkey. Monkeys are the same everywhere. It's a monkey's nature to move around. And realizing, and realizing that is the end of the problem. If you're going to keep suffering all the time because the monkey doesn't keep still, you're on your way to an early grave. You'll even be more of a monkey than a, mon than a monkey is. <laughs> Can you follow that? So if you're going to keep suffering all the time because a monkey doesn't keep still, you're on your way to an early grave. You'll be even more of a monkey than a monkey is. So that uh, if you're wanting the... the in this example, again, monkeys are kind of common in Thailand. At least they used to be. Um, but that's their nature. They jump around. They're, they're, they're busy. They're, they're chattery. That's, that's how monkeys are. If you think it shouldn't be that way, then you're just going to make yourself disappointed and upset. Um, so being able to know that's the nature of monkeys, then uh, you'll be able to uh, be much more... Uh, you're creating the causes of peacefulness in your own mind. And the last one, doubt and indecision. The last of the hindrances, skeptical doubt, vichikicha, is the most insidious and crippling member of the group. It's characterized by vacillation, by the hesitation to follow through on a commitment. The hindrance occurs when meditators possess sufficient information about the teachings or the technique to take them through the initial stages of practice, but they become paralyzed by a need to be sure of the effectiveness of the method, or the teacher, or the teachings, or of their own capacity to progress, before making the effort and renunciation necessary to verify it. Not all doubt is a hindrance to meditation practice. On the contrary, some doubts are taken to be signs of intelligence. Speaking to the Kalamas, the Buddha said, It's good. You're doubting about things worthy of doubt. The doubts of those who recognize that they lack the necessary information or the clear criteria to make a good choice are not considered to be defilements of the mind. The hindrance 
is born from a craving for guarantees that cannot be provided. The Buddha's simile to illustrate this hindrance is of a traveller lost in a desolate place whose fear of the possible dangers on the path to safety outweigh the desire to reach that safety. In the early days of Wapapong, the majority of the monastics and lay supporters received only the rudiments of a formal education and had strong confidence in Lung Po. They were not given to much pondering over the teachings. Their main doubts would centre on whether or not they wanted to remain as monks. In later years, with more people from the city coming to the monastery and growing numbers of Western disciples, overthinking became more of an issue in the monastery. Doubts about the teacher, the teaching, the student's ability to practice, the teacher's teaching, they multiplied. Lumpur's response to the chronic doubters was always to point out, Doubting never stops because of someone else's words. Doubts come to an end through your own actions. Placing unquestioning trust in the words of an authority figure can suppress doubts on one level, but it is a strategy that can never achieve a lasting security from them. Lumpur taught that the only way to go beyond doubts was through insight into their nature as impermanent, conditioned mental states. On one occasion he explained why he didn't conduct daily interviews with the monks as is the practice in many meditation centres. And Lumpur is speaking here. If I answer your every little question, you'll never understand the process of doubt in your own mind. It is essential that you learn to examine yourself, to interview yourself. Listen carefully to the Dhamma talk every few days, then use the teaching to compare with your own practice. Is it the same? Is it different? Why do you have doubts? Who is it that doubts? Only through self-examination will you understand. If you doubt everything, then you'll become totally miserable. You'll be off your food and unable to sleep, spending your whole time chasing after this view and that. What you must bear in mind is that your mind is a liar, not a lawyer, a, a liar. It lies. Mental states are just that way. They don't last. Don't run around with them. Just know them with equanimity. As one doubt passes away and a new one arises in its place, be aware of that for what it is as well. Then you'll be at ease. If you rush about after your doubts, then not only will you be unhappy, but the doubts will increase. On reaching a certain point in their practice, some meditators would begin to wonder about the identity of the states they were experiencing while they were meditating. And Paul would say they weren't on a highway. There were no, sign there were no signposts in the mind. On another occasion, he said it didn't really matter if you were ignorant of the name of a fruit as long as you were aware of its sweetness and fragrance. And Lumpur is speaking. Meditation is the same. It's not necessary to know what things are called. If you know the name of the fruit, it doesn't make it any sweeter. So, be aware of the relevant causal conditions of that state. But if you don't know the name, it doesn't matter. You know the flavour. If someone tells you the name, then take note of it. But if they don't, there's no need to get upset. So this is particularly in reference to the idea of what, what state of meditation, what state of concentration is this, or is this a, is this a genuine insight, or is this just my mind thinking, or what, what is this? Uh, so that, that doubt about what am I experiencing, what name does this have, or what stage have I reached, or what have I not reached, and 
those kind of things. So that's why Lumpur said it's not like a, a highway saying 54 kilometers to Uban or you know, 99 kilometers to Sisaket or 400 kilometers to Bangkok. And lastly, Lumpur once reassured a Western disciple. Doubting is natural. Everyone starts out with doubts. You can learn a great deal from them. What is important is that you don't identify with your doubts. That is, don't get caught up in them. This will spin your mind in endless circles. Instead, watch the process of doubting, of wondering. See who it is that doubts. See how doubts come and go. Then you will no longer be victimized by your doubts. You'll step outside of them and your mind will be quiet. You can see how all things come and go. Just let go of what you're attached to. Let go of your doubts and simply watch. This is how to end doubting. So, <clears throat> just to make a, a comment on that, also that uh, Lumpur Sumedha would often teach uh, very, very helpfully uh, in that uh, in that area about with uh, with uh, respect to doubt. Most of us in the West are sort of Olympic class thinkers. We are very uh, uh, prone to living in the world of thought and concepts and mental creations. And so we take our thoughts to be, be true and valid all the time. And so one of the, the, the helpful things that, uh, like that Lumpur Chah says there and that Lumpur Sumedha would often point to is that, that one of the, the most important things with a doubt is not to, to assume that you can think your way to the end of a doubt. You can't think your way to certainty. And it's, it's a bit like a, an endless courtroom battle. The, the, the lawyers are paid to keep arguing. The, the, the longer the argument goes on, the more the lawyers get paid. So that often when the mind is in a state of doubt, it's like the uh, uh, courtroom battle, the argument going on between two sets of lawyers. And they, and they come up with evidence to prove, no, was, no, no, he's guilty. No, he's innocent. No, he's guilty. No, he's innocent. And they just keep making, um, gathering more and more information to make the case. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. So it goes on and on and on. So you can't uh, effectively think your way to the end of a doubt. And even if you force a decision, finally, then they just go to appeal. <laughs> goes back to a higher court. It keeps on and on and on. So what uh, what Lumpur's Chara is saying there, and what Lumpur Sumedha would also encourage, is to recognize <clears throat> this is a doubt. When the mind says, what should I do? What's the right thing for me to do? Just to be able to step out of the content of the, the, the question and say, this is a question. And then, and then the thinking mind goes, yeah, but, 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 but I need an answer. What, what should I do? What should I do? That's a good question. <laughs> Questions arise and pass away. No, 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 you're just dodging the issue. What should I do? What's the right thing for me to do? That's a question. So the, 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 the desire mind and the, the, the sort of self-centered habit of thinking gets really annoyed and frustrated. Like, this, 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 you're weaseling out of it. We need an answer here. We've got to decide. What should I do? What's the right thing for me to do? But to skillfully work with doubt is to keep stepping out of the, of the content of the question and say, yes, this is a question. A question. This is a very, very important question. This is a significant issue. Yes, that's fully acknowledged. But this is actually, in this moment, this is a question arising and passing away. 
It begins, what should I do? And it ends. There's silence before, silence after. Indeed, silence permeating it, even as it's forming in the mind. So this is very frustrating to the thinking mind, deeply annoying, but it's very liberating to the, to the heart. So, do we have any questions, reflections on your favorite hindrances? Yes, Paul. The best positives to the hindrances is like Vitaka Vichara, I thought. Oh, sorry, I can't remember. It's like the, the picking up of the object and the investigation of the object brings some sense of confidence, and maybe joy from, you know, from the confidence in the objects that you're choosing to follow. But that was like an alleviation of well, there's, yeah, that, that, um, well, there's a, a particular sutta where the Buddha uses these five similes for, well, there's, there's a couple of them, but the one, one particular sutta where he talks about, um, the, compares the hindrances to being, to being sick, and then uh, uh, a person who's sick, a person who's in debt, a person who's in prison, a person who's enslaved and a person crossing a desert and that uh, then being free of the hindrances like a person who's sick who then recovers from their sickness or a person who's in debt who's free from debt or a person who's been in jail being freed from jail a person who's been a slave being freed from slavery and a person who's uh, crossing a desert getting safely to the other side of the desert so there's a natural joyfulness in being free of the hindrance like wow my goodness this is great and that and the feel of no longer feeling of no longer slogging through the desert, uh, or no longer in debt, and that sense of uh, joyfulness. But it's interesting in those those similes that the, the they're all quite physical. That the Buddha uses that sense, and I think it's helpful to reflect on that. That when the the the, the hindrances are not just sort of theoretical, but it's almost like a, an a oppression. And, that, the, and the word hindrance, nivarana, like. You're, you're blocked, you're obstructed. There's a sense of confinement, um, and which is, there's a there's a physicality to it. It's not just a, in the in the mental realm, but that that physical sense of, of pressure or 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 being uh, tied up or, or hindered. Uh, and then the 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 way that the the Buddha describes the, the freedom from that, like from sickness or from um, from imprisonment and so on, that there. There's a, uh, uh, sort of a, 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 a full-scale sense of, or a, a whole-body sense of, of liberation or freedom or delight that, that comes with that. It's not just like the, the joy of solving a crossword puzzle. You know? <laughs> it's like having been sick, you know, the, the freedom from sickness is a, it's a much more comprehensive quality of, of joyfulness. Yes, General Nidari. <coughs> I was wondering, Ajahn, also related to the hindrance of doubt, if there's a connection and what the connection will be between doubt and self-identity view, how, because it seems like they're kind of connected, if one doesn't believe in the self, there's no doubt, is there a connection there? Or? Uh, that's a good point. Uh, I would say the doubt that's a hindrance, uh, I think Ajahn Jayasaro, he, he, des- he describes that extremely well, he, he's, he's not showing off which is good, uh, which is impressive, because he, he is very good with words. But he has a, a very neat way of 
of expressing things when uh, he really needs to. But so that his expression there of uh, saying, the hindrance occurs when meditators possess sufficient information about the teachings or the technique to take them through the initial stages of practice, but they become paralyzed by a need to be sure of the effectiveness of the method, or the teacher or the teachings, or their own capacity to progress before making the effort and renunciation necessary to verify it. So that's kind of quite specific, but um, that uh, that is very much based around the feeling of I. Do I know enough? Have I got the capacity? Am I getting this right? Am I getting this wrong? All that I and me and, uh, and mine is, is woven into that. So that the, the doubt that is the hindrance, I would say, is is woven in together with self-view, with satiety, most of the time. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the, in a sense, the frustration that comes with, with doubt is that there is also that um, the more that is brought into, the more that's going to compound self-view, the feeling of I need to get, I should have, I, if I, I've got to have an answer, then I'll be complete. So that the, the more that the mind gets caught in the doubt, then that, that compounds the habits of, of self-view. So it's, in, it's also interesting that one of the most helpful methods of breaking through self-view is to use doubt in a conscious way, uh, using the capacity to, to question. Like saying, who is it that's doubting? Yeah. Who is it that's thinking? Who is it that's aware? So deliberately using the, the questioning mind to cut through the, the habits of self-view and to also let go of the, the limitations that come from conceptual thought or looking for reality to be encapsulated in a concept or, or an opinion, in an idea or a, a form. So that when, when Lumpur Cha um, and Lumpur Sumedho first met, Lumpur asked, uh, asked him what kind of meditation he'd been doing. And so prior to that time, Lumpur Sumedho had been, as a layman, when he was in Borneo, he had used the Dhamma books uh, written by Charles Luke, uh, a series called Chan and Zen Training that were published by Charles Luke, I think by Ryder public, Publications. And uh, a friend of his had sent, sent him those, so that was his, his sort of meditation guidance he got from these Dhamma talks by a great master, Shu Yun, in, uh, from a, a a meditation retreat that he led in, in Shanghai in the 50s. And so the, the method that he taught was this use of questioning, who am I? So that was the, the meditation method. And so when he was a layman, that was what uh, Lumpur Sumedha had used, as because uh, it's described in quite some detail in these Dhamma talks. And that really inspired him, or was meaningful to him, so he started applying that and found it very helpful. And so that's what he used when he was a layman, and then when he was in... Um, Nongkai as a novice, he was a year as a, a, a novice in the monastery in Nongkai. And so that's what he'd been doing for that whole time. He'd been using this inquiry into who am I as a meditation method. And uh, so when he met Lumpur Cha, and uh, Lumpur Cha asked him what kind of practice he'd been doing, he described this. And there was another monk there who could speak some English, uh, which is very fortunate. And so uh, <clears throat> he thought that Lumpur Cha was going to say, oh, we'll stop doing that, you know, you've got to do my method. You know, that, 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 that's a waste of time, or that's, not, that's incorrect, or that's, that's not uh, 
if you're going to live here, then you can't you can't do that. You have to do my my meditation practice, because um, that was very common in Thailand at that time. Was that each monastery would have a particular method? So the same every day. But Lumpur Cha was quite notable, in, and there wasn't a Lumpur Cha method. It was just you know, he had many many different skillful means, and so when he asked, so to his surprise, he asked the young Ajahn Sumedho, so. What are the results? You know, when you when you practice in that way, what what are the results? So how does that work? And then he talked he talked uh, through it, and said, well, when when you uh, you use that kind of questioning, then it it uh, helps the mind to develop the insight into to not self to see that any kind of eye making and mind making is is false is is deceptive, and so it falls away and leaves the mind kind of bright and and spacious and. That sense of I and me and mine has no traction, has no has no power, no strength, and so Lumpur uh, <coughs> Chah said, "Fine, carry on doing that." So he was the, the young Ajahn Sumedho was very surprised. Oh, really? <laughs> and uh, and later on, he asked Lumpur Chah, well, had, "Had you ever heard of that meditation method before?" And he said, "No." <laughs> but he he was ready to trust the, the experience of uh, this this young. A newly ordained monk, because like that was what he'd been doing, and he'd been having a, a good results from it, uh, and so that that use of of doubt and questioning is a a, a very lovely simile the Buddha used is using a thorn to dig out another thorn. So like if he's trodden on a thorn, like a sharp prickle, and it's stuck in your foot, you can use another thorn as a as a sharp like as a, a needle to sort of to dig it out. So you're using reflective thought in order to get a perspective on, on thinking. So you use a thorn to remove another thorn. So if the mind is caught into into believing in thought or, or getting caught up in doubts or trying to think its way to the end of a doubt, then to use a question like who's doubting? Yeah. Yeah. What is it that's aware of this thought? Does this thought have an owner? Then it's another doubt, but it's a doubt that helps the mind to to let go of the of the doubt, to see it in its true context, to see it. You know, doubts arise and pass away; that they are they're just formations like anything else, and that yeah, it's when you believe in a, a doubt or you buy into it as an identification with a doubt, then it's like you've become that question, and you there's this there's this feeling of uh, when I've got the answer, then I'll be complete. I'm like a, I'm this question looking for its answer, and at this moment the universe is incomplete because I've got to have my answer. When I've got my answer, then I'll be happy. It's like being hungry. It's when I've had some food, then I'll be complete. But in itself, hunger is a is a completely is a complete feeling. It's it's a complete experience. It just arises and passes away. It is what it is. We can say I, I have to eat to get rid of the hunger, but in itself, the experience of hunger is just an experience. It's perfect and complete, exactly as it is. It says, find some food, now. But that's just for the, the message of the hunger. But in itself, it's just a feeling in the body that arises. And says, and it's a hungry feeling. So doubt is similar. You can recognize that the doubt says, what should I do? What's the right thing for me to do? Am I getting this practice right? Then... If you buy into the content, then you've got to scurry around and ask the Ajahn or read a book or figure out whether it's right or wrong. Because you, you're looking for 
the answer to make you feel complete. But when the, when there's a, a letting go of the content of the doubt, to look at the process of, of the doubt, then what should I do? Arises, does its thing, fades away. Comes out of the silence of the mind, dissolves into the silence of the mind. It begins, it ends, like everything else. It's, it's a complete thing. It's telling you it's incomplete, but actually it is complete. Like a hungry feeling. I need food. I need food. Rises, passes away. <laughs> you follow that? So that, uh, if you can really get a feeling for that, it makes a huge difference to one's practice. You can save weeks of grief, months or years. <laughs> but it's one of those things. It, it's if you apply it in a, in a consistent and patient uh, way, then it has a, a way of of uh, freeing the mind from the limitations of thinking in a very radical, complete way. But if you don't apply it, then you'll just the mind will keep believing in its thoughts. But if you if you have the the, the mindfulness and presence of mind to keep applying it, then it it'll have a very powerfully liberating effect. So it's just basically taking Lumpur Lumpur Chah's advice that your thoughts are lies. They're not true. <laughs> just to keep this in a very simple and direct way, just to uh, to question that. Or like I was saying in the guided meditation this morning. Just uh, uh, whenever your mind gets caught in a doubt or a question or a judgment, is that so? Just to ask that, is that so? And then in that moment of, of, uh, of questioning that statement or that opinion, that, that impulse, then the, the heart recognizes, oh, it's just, this is just an impulse, it's just a judgment, it's just a question, that's all. But I see the clock has moved on past seven already. Time has flown by, so we'll call it to a close now.